Well, turn with me, if you would, to the uh, book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. If that's not a hymn for today, I don't know what is. Especially the third verse, Cure thy children's warring madness. Oh, Lord, that's a prayer for today. We come today to a passage, and it's not just that hymn, to a passage of Scripture that bears direct relation to what's been happening in our country. Not coincidentally, this happens again and again. If you're, if you're faithful to God's word in your devotions going verse by verse, from the pulpit going verse by verse, uh, it speaks to your situation. Many of you, if not all of you, have found that out. And we come today to a passage of scripture in our verse-by-verse exposition of scripture that bears direct relation to what's been happening in our country, and in particular to the events of this week in Washington, D.C. As you'll see, if you bear with me to the very end, cure thy children's warring madness. How's that for a teaser? It'll be more like a test. You'll be tested both by the material that we're going to be wading through. You'll really need to focus. It's getting pretty theological. And also, even more, as we'll see, you'll also be tested by the message of the material. And you'll know by the end whether you've passed or not. In some ways, it's actually a test of the entire conservative right. There's a beatitude that's at the heart of what we'll be talking about today. It's the most important beatitude out of which all of the others flow. And that is Christ's first beatitude, where he says, Blessed are the, what? Poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the first thing Christ ever taught in a formal setting. And he put it first because it's the wellspring of everyone else for those who are seeking the right kingdom. It's the wellspring of everything else, as we'll see. It's the heart of our faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Realizing our spiritual poverty is the secret of a whole lot of things. It's the secret, putting it in the context of this verse of the kingdom, of knowing the blessings of the kingdom in us. And of advancing the kingdom through us. Of experiencing the kingdom in all of its fullness. The kingdom that will never end. It's an upside down kingdom. Where blessed are the poor in spirit. That's Romans 7. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Romans 8. As we'll see next week. Which is why I've titled this message. Blessed are the wretched. Blessed are those who know their wretchedness. In all humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We come today to a passage that's about the brokenness that always comes before his fullness. It's about the burden of sin that has got to come before he'll revive us again. It's the reverse economy of the kingdom of heaven by which you can measure which kingdom you're really fighting for. Whose side you're really on. Where the greatest shall be the least. It's a reverse economy. Where the first shall be the last. Where the wretched shall be the blessed. And the history of the church proves it, that when our brokenness goes deep enough, when we don't soft-pedal our sin, it can all turn on a dime, whether you're talking about the life of a person or of a congregation or of a nation. 
And you see then that there is no greater contrast in all of life than between the agony that we go through before and the glory that comes after. Between the repentance from our sin and the fullness of the Savior which then comes. And overall, there is no greater contrast in all of Scripture than between the the, the wretched man who we'll meet in Romans 7 and the blessed man who we'll meet in Romans 8. Overall, these two chapters set up, really, the classic pattern of revival. They set the precedent for it, for the turnaround that we can experience in our own lives and in the life of our congregation and even in whole nations. It's like one person said after the nationwide revival that happened in Uganda at the turn of the millennium. After a truly remarkable nationwide awakening where the president of Uganda dedicated the nation to God in their packed national stadium. He said, Never lose hope. God can do anything if you fight in God's way. First week, the brokenness. This week, blessed are the wretched. Just to give you a bird's eye view, in this chapter, Paul chronicles the dark side of life under the sun, under the same roof with our ex, with that wicked old man who God divorced us from. He tells us not how easy it is life should be if we're really mature, but how hard it should be if we're truly spiritual. How increasingly hard it should be that we can still be so fleshly. And as you grow older, it becomes even harder because you're weaker and so more flesh comes out. And you see uh, the stuff that you did in in your youth that you weren't even aware of, the false motives and all the rest. You're increasingly convicted so often as you grow older. That's why David said, forgive the sins of my youth. And that's what Paul's talking about, how increasingly hard it should be that we can still be so fleshly. So don't automatically get too down on yourself if you're down on yourself. Or better, down on your sin, convicted of your sin. No, you're a part of the remnant that can bring revival to this nation. And all it takes is a remnant. When everyone is down on everyone but themselves. On both sides even among Christians. Paul shows us here by his own example not how to be sin-free, but first how to be sin-grieved, which is the prerequisite, the precondition for being sin-free. Because it always goes from repentance to revival, from wretchedness to his fullness for individuals, congregations, and nations. That's the pattern. So, ready or not, let's jump in. Romans 7, starting in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, through, uh, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. 
For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. Having died to that which we were bound. Another translation says, having died to that which held us captive. These first six verses, the first six verses of chapter 7, explain the main point of chapter 6. And that is, we've died to the old self, to the old man who held us captive. Remember the old man who we talked about last year, way back at the end of November when we were in chapter 6? Remember the message, living with your ex? He's saying here that we've died to our old husband. We've been released from the law of marriage to him, from the law of bondage, as he puts it. As Paul said, we've been married to another, having been died to that which held us captive. We've been divorced from the old man and united with Christ. That's his point here. Though, unfortunately, as we've seen, we're still living under the same roof with him. And Paul's point in this passage is what that's like. John Newton put it this way. He was a slave trader, many of you know of him, who came to Christ and who ended up writing Amazing Grace. And it's all the more amazing in light of what's going on inside of us, what went on inside of him. Here's what he said. He said, I have a troublesome inmate. This is kind of archaic language, but I think you'll get the point. I have a troublesome inmate, a lodger, who assumes as if my house were his own. He is a perpetual encumbrance, and he spoils all. He has long been noted for his evil ways, but though generally known, he is not easily avoided. He lodged with one Paul of Tarsus long before I was born and made him groan. Romans 7 is about just that, Paul's groaning. He's talking about Romans 7 here. This lodger made him groan wearily and cry out lustily, sinfully. Time was when I thought I would shut the door to keep him out of my house, but my precaution came too late. He was already within, and to turn him out by head and shoulders is beyond my power. Nay, I cannot interdict him from any one room. If I think of retiring to the closet, he is there before me. We often meet and jostle and snarl at each other. But sometimes, would you believe it? I lose all my suspicion and am disposed to treat him as an intimate friend. This inconsistency of mine, I believe, greatly encourages him. For I verily believe that he would be ashamed and afraid to be seen by me if I always kept at the proper distance. However, we both lay such claim to the same dwelling that I believe the only way of setting the dispute will be, which the landlord himself has spoken of, to pull down the house over our heads. That is, when I die, I'll be free. But not until then. There may seem to be something disagreeable to this mode of proceeding. But from what I have read in an old book, I form a hope that when things come to this crisis of my death, I shall escape, and my enemy will finally be crushed in ruins. Praise God. That's what we talked about in Romans 6, about living with your ex, how we're divorced from the old man, but still under the same roof with him. And in chapter 7, Paul starts by telling us how this divorce was made possible legally. 
And it's all summed up as we read here in verse 6 when he says, But now we have been released from the law, uh, having died to that which we were bound. Which means having died to sin or to the old man as he says in chapter 6. That is, again, we were bound to the sinful old man as in a marriage, but we died to him spiritually when we accepted Christ's death as our own. Legally, there was a divorce. By law, marriage is till death do you part. So having died, you were released from the law of marriage in God's eyes, divorced from the old man, and united with Christ who gave you a whole new life. You came back to life as a different person. So now, who you really are is not that old man. You've got the spirit of Christ in you, and he's your true identity. Who you really are is no longer in the flesh, in the old man, in a marriage from hell. Though God knows the old man is still in us, and we can still plug into him. But we've been released from the law of marriage, reading on now in verse 6, having died to that which we were bound, to the old man, so that we now serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. He's talking here about the fullness of the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, who's in us now, which is what revival is all about. Which Paul will pick up again at the end of chapter, at beginning of chapter 8. But... Having talked about the fullness of the Spirit, having put that out there as the carrot stick, he then goes on for the rest of chapter 7 to tell us not about the fullness of the Spirit, but about his brokenness, his emptiness, his wretchedness in the flesh, which is the prerequisite for the fullness. Moving on now from our newfound freedom from the old man, verses 1 to 6, to our bondage which is the rest of the chapter. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He warms us up to this idea that, that, that experiencing our sin is good by saying, that's why God gave the law, so you would experience your sin. The assumption here is that it's a good thing to know about your sin, a very good thing. And he goes on to show how the law was given to pull out the fullness of our sin. So we would really, really know it. In fact, Paul spent the first three chapters of Romans, if you remember, exposing our sin, Romans 1 to 3. And now he spends a whole other chapter on his own sin. Because unlike what we're hearing in many churches today, churches which practice feel-good religion, where sin and righteousness and judgment are so rarely mentioned, unlike what some are saying these days, a, a, a deep and prolonged conviction of sin is a good thing. So good that that's what always happens in times of revival. Just check your church history, whether at Pentecost or the first and second great awakenings with George Whitfield and John Wesley and all the rest. Whenever, wherever, when God finally shows up, it is not, you know, there, there, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, I'll heal your wounds. Oh no, people are flat on their face, begging for mercy, sometimes month after month. It's all through the history of the church. 
just as we need to be doing as a nation. And that posture of repentance is the secret not only of being saved from sin, but of serving in the newness and the, the fullness of the spirit within, which is Paul's point here. And for that reason, Paul says here that the law is good. And essentially he says, without the law we're clueless, so sinful are we. Which is why according to Paul in 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's fully half of why God gave us his word. Uh, and so he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for for four things, for teaching, and then the, half, the other half, for, te- for proof and correction, and for training in righteousness. By the way, according to Christ, it's a good part of why the Spirit was given, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Why this emphasis? Well, Paul says essentially in this verse, I would never have seen the extent of my sinfulness, of my wretchedness, without the law. I, I would have thought I was pretty righteous, And again and again, we flip back into that. It's like one man wrote, men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion to the degree to which they have perceived the holiness of God in his law, his word. Without that, we'd be pretty self-righteous, and we still are. Without that, you think you're pretty good, and you'll be too full of yourself for him to fill you with much of himself. And all the flesh will come out, and we'll fight like cornered animals. And so he gave us the law of the Bible so there'd be no question in our minds when it comes to the need of a Savior. And sin, verse 8, taking opportunity through the commandment, the commandment that provoked the sin in us, that, that drew it out, that showed us what it was, sin produced in me coveting. A better translation is probably lust which you could paraphrase sinful desires. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment, intensified by the commandment, produced in me sinful desires of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. That is, apart from the law, I'd be clueless of my sin. I'd be, it, it, it'd be as, as much as dead in me, as far as I'm concerned. Apart from the law, apart from what God says in the Bible about true holiness... It's just not that big an issue. And if you don't preach the Bible, the gospel will end up being there, there. Christ will heal your wounds. So wicked are we that we can live in denial of how wicked we are. That's our natural bent. And nowhere is this more true than when you're in a controversy. (laughs) You can't be married for more than a few weeks to see how self-righteous you can get where it's all their problem and not yours, right? Nowhere is this more true than when you're in a controversy, whether maritally or congregationally or politically. We can be so self-righteous. It's like Wendell Berry said in his book, World Ending Fire. He's a great essayist. What is happening today is that most public people, from government officials and political candidates to activists to voters, are involved in an ever-intensifying contest of self-righteous rhetoric, as though that's going to solve the problem. And then he says, to give the matter over 
to the processes of public rhetoric is, and worse, is to forego the personal, self-critical, moral intelligence that is essential to any hope. And it stinks to high heaven. And this is what Paul is aiming to take down in this chapter. Our self-righteous rhetoric that makes us a part of the problem as much as anyone else. A complete lack of the personal, self-critical, moral intelligence that is essential to any hope. And if Christians can't do that, we're lost. Which is Paul's goal here, to bring that on us. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. It liked to, he's saying, it liked to kill me now that I saw how sinful I was. That's good. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. I once was alive apart from the law. Paul's telling his own story here now. He's getting personal. He's saying, I was basically ignorant of my sin as a child. He's probably talking about when he was a, a, young, a young child. I was blissfully ignorant. But when the law came, when my parents said, don't do it, you know, and all of that, when God started to show me how bad I was, it, when I came of age, it liked to kill me. More and more, I saw how trapped I was in my own body, and it became like this marriage from hell. And the more I tried, the worse I got. And I could have died. I felt like I was dying. God was drawing him to him. Verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous uh, and good. Therefore, that which is good became the law, became a cause of death for me. He's answering the self-righteous, or, or that's the question. Therefore, did that which is good, the law, become the cause of my death? He's, he's answering the self-righteous accusation that he heard from the Pharisees, this blaming God for uh, their sin, if what you're saying is true, Paul, because they thought they were righteous. May it never be. Rather, it was your sin that did it, that the law provoked. It was sin that's the problem. It was my own sin that was killing me on the inside in order that it might be shown to be sin in living color. It had to be shown to be sin before my very eyes or I would have been clueless in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. Sin had to become utterly sinful to the point that it almost killed him before he could even see it to be utterly saved. Sin had to become utterly sinful in him for him to be utterly saved. It had to go from being latent in him to becoming like decadent through him. Because until he was utterly sorrowful, for being so utterly sinful, there would be no salvation. And this is the way God deals with men and nations. If you know your Bible. And it's not only the story of, if that's not the story, 
of what happened at the U.S. Capitol this week, I don't know what is. Sin became utterly sinful. That in many ways, if that's not the story, that in many ways the right is no different from the left. Not that we're wrong in many of our positions. No, we're right. But that's what it took to get us off our self-righteous pedestals. Or it should have done that. But even with all that, there are many who still don't get it. Yes, Antifa may have been there, but the vast majority were from the conservative right. Yes, the left have been violent too, but that is no excuse and stop pointing the finger. And many still don't get it. Does that mean we're not to be political? Oh, no. May it never be. No, it simply means, as Julie said, we need to conduct ourselves in a manner that turns people's eyes to Christ, even in our politics. And we're not doing that. I could say more there, but I'll have mercy. Because <laughs> I'm pointing the finger at myself, too. I felt those feelings rage, too. At this point, Paul moves from his pre-conversion experience as an unsaved man to his post-conversion experience as a mature Christian, as a disciple, in this journey he's taking us on, this necessary journey through a whole chapter to the fullness of the Spirit of Romans 8. And so in the next verse, he moves us from the past tense to the present tense. He shows us that even as Christians, there's a good part of him that's very sinful, utterly sinful. Verse 14 for we know, it's in the present tense now, that the law is spiritual, but I am still of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, or so it can feel. What he's saying is this, I'm not in the flesh any longer. I'm not bound to the flesh like I was in a one flesh union with the the old man, but the flesh is still in me and it's still part of me and so I am still, I can still be of flesh associated with it by virtue of living under the same roof, the flesh who knows how to push all my buttons still. Just like an ex-spouse. So much so that sometimes it feels like I'm back into the same old marriage, sold into bondage to sin. As I, as I struggle with my, with my anger, my fear, my anxiety, my self-righteous finger pointing, all these things that all of us uh, struggle with in our Christian life. And then he sets the example. Not how to be sin-free, but how to be sin-grieved. Which again is the prerequisite for being set free, of going from our emptiness to his fullness. Verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. 
He's making a very important distinction here. Yeah, be sin grieved, but don't let Satan turn that into total condemnation because that is no longer the real you. You're no longer bound to hell because that's all of who you are, just the flesh. No, you've got a new you. It's not really you, but still it's going to be really hard. It's like one of the characters in a novel that I read once. I wrote this down. He said, I ain't got to, but I can't help it. Ever felt that way? That's Romans 7 in a nutshell. I ain't got to, but I can't help it. Even as a Christian, you can feel like you're in bondage because you're imprisoned in your own fleshly body. And without God's help, you'll never break free, just like when you were saved. Can't do it on your own. You need a Savior. So important is this that we're honest with this inner conflict that Paul confesses, get this, he confesses the same thing three times in a row. Like a good preacher, he's got a three-point sermon going on here, and they're all the same point. Paul makes one point three times over the space of nine verses. Three verses per time. He really rubs it in, which looking around us today, God knows we need We're just not getting it. So, one reason I'm going through this in one week, all these verses, is because I don't like this message. It's hard to preach this way. And if it seems like it's over the top, don't blame me. Blame Paul. It's like Harry Truman said, I don't give them hell. I just tell them the truth, and they think it's hell. And it's the same with Paul. He gives us one point of truth three times. The second time starts in the next three verses, verses 18 to 21. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, he makes this distinction. Satan can eat your lunch and bring on condemnation, the sorrow that leads to death. Don't let it go there. That's no longer the real you, but don't avoid the sorrow. Just use it in the right way. Paul's saying, it's not the real me, because he's changed my heart, but it sure is part of me still. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is so weak, and there's no getting away from the flesh, because I'm imprisoned. And then in the next three verses, he says the same thing for the third time. Verses 21 to 23, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, but the one, the one who wishes to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law. That, the different law here is the law of lawlessness, the rule of lawlessness, even in me sometimes. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. In John Newman's words, I cannot interdict him from any one room. If I think of retiring into the closet corner, he is there with me. And then Paul's great conclusion Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? This looks bad, but it's really good. This man is primed. 
He's a prime candidate for the fullness of the Spirit that can come through our brokenness in the flesh. In fact, he's so ready that revival all but breaks out in the very next verse, even though he had yet to wrap it up. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. And you think, at last, we're finally getting over this sin thing. But then he pulls it back just to make sure that we get it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, and now we hear it for the fourth time. On one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Thanks be to God for what? Well, that's two verses later, as we'll see next time. Chapter 8, verse 2 which is the final kind of bookend on this discussion. Thanks be to God for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus can set me free. For the newness, the fullness of the spirit in which we can now serve because of our brokenness. Which, if you remember, is how Paul began this whole discussion at the other bookend, way at the beginning, 20 verses, one verses earlier, chapter 7, verse 6, so that we now serve in the fullness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter, after which, again, he instinctively spends almost an entire chapter talking not about this fullness of the Spirit, but about his emptiness, his brokenness, his wretchedness in the flesh, because you will not be filled without first being emptied. Blessed are the wretched. And of course you see this all through scripture. It's what Isaiah went through before God revived him. After he said, woe to me. Wretched man that I am. Woe to me. He's pronouncing condemnation on himself. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then God went on to turn it around and commission him to write the book. It's what David went through before God revived him when he said, A broken and a contrite our heart, O God, you will not despise. And then he went on to write some of the greatest of the Psalms. It's what the publican did. Remember the publican? It's what he went through before God revived him when he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in Isaiah 57, 15, he sums it up. When he says, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and a holy place, and also with the lowly and contrite of spirit, in order to revive, revival, the heart of the contrite, and to revive the heart of the lowly. It's what happened to John in Revelation 1, after being like sliced through, by the sharp two-edged sword that came out of Christ's mouth, by the word of Christ, when the fullness of the one who is holy, holy, holy was weighing heavily on every twist of John's depravity, so much so in his flesh that he had to fall on his face like a dead man. I fell at his feet as a dead man. Just like with Paul, this mature apostle, it's right out of Romans 7, was crushed under the weight of his sin. 
But then it says, he laid his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so I have the keys of death and Hades. I've got the keys. I I died and I was raised again, so I've got the key. And I can turn and I will turn your death into life again and again, but it won't happen unless you die. I died and I was raised again. And you can be too. And just like he had done so often during his earthly life, this man-shaped thing, this awesome being, was moved with compassion, and he stretched out his hand and touched him. And John rose in the power of Christ's mercy, and he went on to write what has got to be one of the greatest books in the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because Christ then commissioned him in the very next verse, verse 19, to write the book. To write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. And the overall idea is this. He devastates before he delegates. That's just his way. And you could write that as a banner over all that we've been talking about today. And you could could write that as a banner over all that you have been through. Over these last three years and climaxing with 40 days of seeking God's guidance in a posture of repentance a little over a year ago when there was such a groundswell of response, of repentance, of people fasting and praying. It was really unusual. And what happened as a result? Well, the touch of the master's hand. Because we took the right posture. God's doing so many things around here now in subtle but powerful ways, as we saw yesterday in the informational meeting. But for this to continue, repentance has got to be a way of life, lest we get swept away by the winds of our culture and politics. By the self-righteous finger-pointing that is consuming our nation. And balkanizing our nation into what could be a civil war. So are you a part of the solution or the problem? The teaching here is not only all over the Bible, it's all over the greatest devotional literature. Wesley Nelson in the classic work called Captivated by Christ. Called this the fundamental discipline of the Christian walk. He said, disciplined living is important to Christianity. But all the disciplines of the Christian life are dependent on the discipline of bringing self to see its own sinfulness and need of the cross. All other disciplines are dependent on the discipline of the cross, which brings us constantly to our need for repentance. The great expositor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it this way, you must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Indeed, the real trouble with most miserable Christians is that they have never been made miserable enough because of conviction of sin. That is the first thing. The great missionary and devotional writer Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, nothing is more deadly than self-righteousness. And nothing is more hopeful than a personal sense of sin. Nakedness comes before being clothed. Deep plowing comes before building. The fact that you are so discouraged is a sign and symptom leading to hope. 
These days I see a lot of self-righteousness on the conservative right, but not much brokenness. And that's too bad because we don't need more Republicans to save this nation nearly as much as we need more publicans who say, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Because it's the wellspring of everything. At least it is among those who are seeking the kingdom that is not of this world. It's the heart of it all among those who are serving the kingdom of God more than any earthly kingdom. It's the test of our heart. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven which is a good part of the solution to what ails our nation because getting back to where we began and summing it up, realizing and repenting of our sinful, our spiritual poverty is the secret of knowing the blessings of the kingdom of God in us and of God's advancing the kingdom through us, of experiencing the kingdom in all its fullness, the kingdom that will never end. And next week we'll see how we can turn it around and make it happen. Well, as the worship leaders come forward, we're going to see next week that we experience the fullness by the same Spirit who convicts us of uh, our wretchedness. And to prepare the way for this, I thought we closed today by asking him to do this. Really pray it, won't you? As you sing, O wind of God, come bend us, break us, till humbly we confess our need. Then in thy tenderness, remake us, revive, restore. For this we plead. Let's all stand and sing together.